0: Good morning everyone, nice to see a few new faces. Um, Thanks uh, to Chris and thanks to to Jason for um, those wonderful words and and, um, verses of comfort. Uh, We're coming to a topic today, uh, which is part of the what's the story, and the heading of the topic is how to make sense of our suffering. Um, I kind of treated it in a kind of a, quite a broad, Um, view, hoping that we might have some newcomers to church, people who mightn't be familiar with the gospel. Um, So yeah, I hope it all works out. Uh, Before I start, let's pray and just uh, ask God for, uh, just ask God to work on our minds, work in my mind, work in all our minds to make us more mature and to bring us to a deeper understanding of what he wants us to be. Father, we just thank you that... uh, Thank you, number one, Father, that we're here as brothers and sisters in Galway City Baptist Church this morning, that we can look at the faces beside us and be encouraged and be comforted by the fact that you have brought others to a knowledge of your amazing grace and your amazing character, and that you have placed us in this family this morning as we come and listen to your word. Father, we hope that your word will work in our hearts. Uh, We hope that your word will not wash off our backs. Um, We hope that they'll fuel our living, um, that they'll reactivate something forgotten in our mind or reliven something, reignite something, or bring back to life something in the mind of an unbeliever, maybe who's here this morning, that would um, just fire them to seek you, Lord, and fire them up to... uh, to find your Lord in this world which is full of suffering and pain. But Father you have hope and that's what we're looking at this morning. We thank you in Jesus name. Amen. <clears throat> well I don't know about you but um, I have a mobile phone in the back of my pocket and it is a mixed blessing. I do spend a lot of time on it. I'm actually seriously contemplating on getting rid of it and getting an old style phone again. Um, I find it doesn't do my soul well sometimes. I'm so clued into uh, media tidbits, uh, news, all kinds of news from the frivolous to the frightening, instant news from Bally James Duff to Bally. And to be honest with you, much of it is about suffering and about pain. It's not really very helpful. Not that I wish to ignore a world of pain and suffering, but sometimes, I don't know what you, it gets me down. And I find even when I when I interact on the phone or interact on the news or the media with suffering and stories of woe from around the world, I'm kind of getting so used to it by now. It's not having the same reaction as it did when I was a younger man. Is that true in your lives or is it just me? I hope it's not just me. I mean, sometimes I respond with anger and compassion to stories, but it's only really when suffering hits us personally that we really wrestle with it. How do we make sense of it? How do Christians make sense of our suffering? How does the world, people perhaps in this, in this room who are not believers in Christ, welcome by the way, how do you make sense of your suffering? We all grapple with this subject. We don't all have the answers or answers perhaps that we'd like. I think the way you will grapple or wrestle with your suffering is, it will depend on your worldview. I'm sorry, but that's it. Now, what's your worldview? I remember as a kid, I'm not sure what chocolate assortment box it was, but they used to come in these beautiful, tinted, painted wrappers. And I used to put one of them up, maybe the red one up to my face, and I'd see the world through a red tint. And then I'd put the blue one up and the green one, and then I'd mix them, and I had all sorts of fun with them. But the point I'm trying to make is that we view the world Through our worldview, the philosophy that we have by which we try and make sense of the deep questions of life, some of these questions that we were addressing over the last number of weeks. Now, in this country, which was traditionally very, very Catholic, there's no doubt about it, probably 98% of Irish people were Catholic. And some of them would, a lot of them would still hold loosely to the faith. But there has been a big move away from Catholicism in this country in the last 20, 30, 40 years. And what's happening is people are. And, and, and rightly so, they have been very disillusioned with the faith. But what they've done is, they've sort of kicked the baby out with the bathwater. They have kicked much of what was good in Catholicism, what was good in a faith which was meant to be centered on God, and they've mixed it with other worldviews, other ways of looking at the world. Because, after all, that's what we're supposed to be doing nowadays, isn't it? We're supposed to be more cosmopolitan. The influences of the world are coming in on us. And come on, we've just got to keep with the times. We have to be tolerant, don't we? We have to kind of view the world and view world religions and view world views in a very kind of um, tolerant, accepting way. And we are finding in Ireland that more and more people have mixed views. There's atheists, there's Christians, there's agnostics, and it can be very confusing. And certainly I don't think it helps to make sense of the big problems in life. Atheism is on the rise in Ireland. It wasn't really very common when I was a young guy. And that view, I think, is not helpful in deciphering or working out and making sense of this problem of suffering. It's on the increase atheism, so it's probably worth mentioning it. I mean, imagine turning up to a hospital bed with Richard Dawkins's book, The River Out of Eden Under Your Arm, and reading this to a, a patient perhaps who's suffering on, with cancer on, his, on, a, on, the, on the bed. Listen to this, in a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, Some people are going to get hurt, others are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. I think the nurse would run you off the ward, wouldn't she? And an atheistic view essentially offers a very meaningless view of life. That doesn't mean that atheists are meaningless people. Some of the nicest, kindest, and most compassionate people I know are atheists. But they're atheists despite their worldview, not because of it. That's my take on it of anyways. And as Christians, we do live in a very pagan world at the moment. It's all around us. And people are embracing, like I said, new worldviews, like there's no tomorrow. But really, are they new? If we look at three of them, we can see that they actually are or have been around before. We look briefly at them. The first one is docetism. This was a Greek philosophy, which basically proposed that the world, the pain, evil and suffering, particularly pain, evil and suffering, is just an illusion. They're just kind of a figment of our imagination. So-called Christian science might hold this view. This is not a good philosophy to bring to the guy who's on his deathbed either. The second point of view, or the second world philosophy, which traditionally has been very strong and which is still around today, and I admit myself at times I can be a bit like this, it's the philosophy of the stoic. You know the philosophy of the stiff upper lip? People who are stoics will try and endure hardship and pain in their lives, by showing no emotion, by maybe killing their emotion, without, certainly without complaining. So people like that can live as islands amongst other people. The people around them not having a clue how they feel or how they're doing in this life. The goal of the Stoic was what well, he believed or she believed that there were external world forces at play in their lives, and they had no control over these. They had no control over their destiny. The only thing they could do was sort of exercise some freedom and how they would react to them. So they practiced um, exercises, Uh, they practiced a philosophy which sought to give them ultimate peace of mind. And they sought to do this by diligently, diligently practicing the suppression of their emotions at all costs, so that they could kind of develop a thick skin, mask their pain, and trundle on through life like that. It really wasn't very helpful, I think. The third world philosophy, which is still alive and kicking today, is hedonism. Now, there were two forms of hedonism in the old Greek days or in the old days, and Paul grapples with this subject as well in the the scriptures, doesn't he? The first form of hedonism was what we might call crude or crass hedonism. These people believed that you lived life for today, You partied hard. Their motto might be maximum pleasure and comfort in life. But the problem with this crude form of hedonism was they partook of, it could actually be best summarized. Remember the old pictures you'd see of Roman banquets with drunken orgies, people making absolute gluttons of themselves, partaking in scandalous behavior. Some people even leaving the parties to go out, regurgitate their food, come back again so they could partake in more food. It was a life of instant pleasure and sensuality. But this school of philosophy didn't last long. I wonder why. You can only live with so many hangovers. (laughs) People realise that... If they really partook in a lot of heavy parting, there was a price to pay. And in fact, they realized pretty soon that they were increasing their suffering, not decreasing it by trying to suppress the suffering and the evil that they were seeing around them by hard parting. So this led into sort of a more refined hedonism, if you don't mind. And this was practiced by the Epicureans. Now, they were around when Paul was around as well, weren't they? These people didn't believe in parting quite as hard. They were gourmands, they partook of the best wine. Um, A little bit of adultery, just enough to spice off life, thank you very much. Nothing to destroy you. That was their motto. Their behavior, and the behavior of the hedonist, is essentially life is hopeless as well. Their motto might have been not maximum pleasure, but optimum pleasure. How to get the best pleasure without actually increasing pain too much. So they were devoted to sensual pleasures. And think of it, as, we, as I'm reading these words, or as I'm, I'm speaking to you, think of the world today. Can you see this in the world today? They were devoted to sensual pleasures, especially the pleasures which could be had by eating the best food. And they lived their lives in expectation of what was to come in their pleasure seeking, or actually in their participation of it. And Paul argues against this philosophy as well in Corinthians. Remember he's trying to make the case that there has to be a resurrection of the body. And if there isn't a resurrection of the body, what's the point of life? And he kind of quotes the Epicurean mantra, and he says, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Well, having briefly looked at those three philosophies, and it might be an interesting sermon to do on on, on this some other day of of, of how we can see them more and more in our society. But certainly if we look at the last one we we, we examined, um, the hedonist, we can see that there's quite a bit of that philosophy around today. If we look at the problems that's in our neighbourhood here in Nakara, in in the city, in Galway City and around Ireland, we can see that drug levels, drug drug taking levels, partaking of alcohol, promiscuity, um, the usage of porn on the internet is at sky high levels. People seem, experientially, seem to be living for the now at the moment around Ireland. I don't know, maybe I've got this take wrong, but to me, certainly, it seems to be that people are living for the now without any thought of eternity or the morrow. The effects of these philosophies, I think, can be seen on our young men and on our young women. Our young men seem to be non-committed, disinterested in life, not committed to marriage, Not committed, perhaps, to any noble causes. Parting and playing and acting the boy late into their 30s. And women as well are affected by the same issues. Added to that, this burden that they have on their shoulders of what it means to live as a woman in today's society, which has completely twisted the image and the purpose that God had intended for it. The evidence, anyways, as I look at it around my place in Connemara, is that The vacating or the abandoning of the Judeo-Christian values has led to a moral decline, Uh, unbridled freedoms of this young generation have given them so much more freedom than we had when we were young teenagers or college-going people, and yet they don't seem to be happy. There doesn't seem to be any major hope. There is no thought of of the tomorrow. I think Christianity has a very different way of making sense of pain and suffering. Not that we can come to an entire understanding of it. If you look at the book of Job, I'm gonna give an honorary mention to the book of Job because Russell told me to, reminded me this morning. (laughs) We can see really that Job struggled with his suffering. Right through, I think, 50 chapters. And God comes in the last couple of chapters and answers, or gives him some answers. But at the end of the day, even god didn't completely answer the reason as to why there was suffering in the world we can see that job in the opening chapters cursed the day that he was born as he sat on a donkey picking scabs off him everything that he knew and everything that he loved were taken from him and yet importantly as peter uh, as peter said he entrusted god with his soul he didn't curse god Most of us in this room, I think, but perhaps there are some who are not familiar with the creation story. This is the anchor of where suffering comes from in the Christian viewpoint. I'm sorry. If you are offended by the idea that you're a sinner, if you perhaps are going to get tuned out now because you've heard the mention of sin, this is what suffering is based on in Christian worldview. We can only make make sense of our suffering through sin. And I'm going to try and outline why that is. Because the creation story is a story of good news, essentially. Even though often when we read Genesis, we think, man, this is terrible. This is bad news. This is awful. Wow, how could they do such a thing, Adam and Eve? But underneath the bad news, there are lines of grace and mercy and hope that God has given us. We can see that God created God created man and woman. God is a creator. They lived in relationship with him in a perfect garden, the Garden of Eden. They lacked for nothing. There was no sin, there was no evil, there was no suffering. They lived a life of Eve. The man toiled, didn't have to toil, but he did work the garden. It was fruitful because it was blessed by God. And yet they listened to the lie of Satan. Satan being the accuser, who broke everything that was good and that was right and fooled the woman and the man into believing that God didn't care for them, God didn't love them, God didn't have their best interests at heart, and that they could become the masters of their own destiny, pride. We still suffer from that today, don't we? Even as Christians, we want to go our own way sometimes and we have to be pulled and drawn back by God. And with this, God had to cast them out of the garden. Now, some might say, why, just, why couldn't God just repair the situation there? God had to cast them out of the garden because the holy cannot live with the profane. God is holy. He had to separate them, but he wasn't being mean. It was for their own good that he separated them because if the profane came into contact with the holy, they would die. So he actually did them a great work of favor and mercy when he cast them out from the garden. But with this casting out, there came judgment. Suffering came into the world, pain, contention between man and woman, broken relationship between man and God. And even the ground wasn't fruitful. Man would have to toil it by the sweat of his brow from now on. But even in their banishment, God set up a plan. Thank you, Lord. He set up a plan whereby he could draw people back again, that he could restore. And he promised Eve, he said, through your seed, a redeemer will come who will restore and fix the brokenness of sin. But it didn't happen immediately. Adam and Eve lived through a world of hurt and their generations. But this redeemer was promised. And the story of the Bible is all about that, really. Now some critics might say, if God is good and loving, why does he allow evil and suffering? Why doesn't he just end it straight away? This is a good question. I don't claim to know the exact answer, but let me put it like this. What do you think of this? Perhaps by God letting suffering and evil run, that it's actually merciful, in that it gives people a chance to examine themselves and to see Are they rebels against God? And to give them a chance to repent. Maybe not all of us in this room would like judgment straight away. God has let his plan run and unfold for a period of time, but he will close it. Suffering will come to an end one day. And I think the reason why suffering and tragedy, I think the reason why I say this is because When suffering and tragedy strikes us, whether you're a believer in God or not, what's the first question we often ask? Why? Why is this happening to me? That why is so important. Now sometimes your worldview might not allow you to ask that question. If you hold, now I'm not saying if you're an atheist or a non-believer in God that you would behave like this. But if you hold firmly to the atheistic belief, you cannot even ask that question. It doesn't make sense. Because life is essentially meaningless. But most of us, when we experience suffering, the first thing we say is, why? We're saying, really, it's not right. And if we're saying it's not right, we're saying that something else is bad. Straight away, there's a tension there. And this tension should point us to something else, something outside our own suffering, something that's not right. Perhaps there's someone who can fix it. Perhaps there's a redeemer who can restore everything, including me, who is broken and sinful. It's only when we wrestle with our suffering, trying to make sense of it, that we can find healing, our hope if we're Christians, our God if we're not Christians. Many people in this room have come to a knowledge of God because of suffering. People who have, for years, trying to make sense, perhaps, of the world through tinted glasses that weren't the right tint. And then they suddenly heard the gospel, and God moved them. God woke them up. God showed them that they were rebels against him and then they repented. How merciful is our Lord. How merciful is God. He's not a sadist who likes to see us in our suffering. He doesn't wish that any perish, the Bible says, but that we'd all come to repentance and a knowledge of him. The scholar R.C. Sproul once quipped that he'd wished his publisher had asked him to publish a book called, "Why Why does bad things happen to good people? He said he could answer it in two words. They don't. Now you might think this comment is a bit flippant or a bit mean, but Romans tells us that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Jesus himself in Mark ten eighteen, said, No one is good except God alone. The suffering of this world is because of sin. And you know what? We're all part of it. We're all part of the problem. Christians are not mightier or more righteous than non-Christians. They've been made right by God. They have not worked out anything on their own behalf. They haven't worked out how to be righteous, how to gain God's favor. And some strands of Christianity in the past have tried to teach this, that by suffering, by relishing our suffering, by heaping suffering on us, we can actually accrue credits with God and some way to work towards gaining our own salvation. This is far from the truth. Now, another good question which people ask is if an all-knowing God would create people or create a people, why did he create them knowing that they would fall so suddenly, and that we would live so long with pain and suffering? This is a good question. Well, God is the creator. Genesis lays that out firm and clear. So in a way, because God is created, he is responsible that suffering can exist. Now, notice I didn't say that suffering, that he's the cause of suffering. But he allows suffering. He allows this broken world to roll on for a while for his purposes. I can't claim, or I don't think anyone in this room can claim why exactly that is. But God has allowed it to roll on for a set period of time, to an appointed time. We can't blame him for our suffering. Because we know that we are part of it. We are the majority of it because we are the offspring of Adam. However, the great thing about it is, even though suffering can exist in this world, God's ultimate plan is to cease it, to stop it. He's not going to allow it to roll on. He couldn't do this. How did he do this? Well, remember the promise of the seed to the woman? That promise is Jesus Christ, who came instead of sinful man in the body of a human. That's why he had to come as a man so that he could identify with us, even though he stayed sinless himself, and he was put up on the cross for our sin, so that you and I in this room wouldn't have to do that. Because the penalty of sin is death, and death is eternal. If we had a million lives, and from tomorrow onwards, we performed only good works, we're only obedient to God, there is no way that we would defeat the penalty of death because it is eternal. So an eternal God had to come as a man and provide a solution. But addressing this question again, why, does he, why did he create people? Well, he created people with free wills. We're not robots. Imagine if your children just obeyed you because they got good stuff from you. I mean, wouldn't that break your heart? You want your kids to honor you and you want your kids to love you and when your kids honor you, obedience is built on that rock. It's not the other way around really. God wanted his creation, he wanted man and woman to honor him. Not that he needed man and woman for anything, not that he was lonely, not that he needed us to complete him, not that he needed minions to go and do his work as some critics of Christianity propose. But God was a God of relationship. He wanted to share something with us. He wanted to share the fellowship and the love that he had with the Son and with the Holy Spirit from eternity past. He's given us everything. He's given us his Son. He's left no stone unturned to sort this problem of suffering. Some claim that he's a God who's distant and aloof from his creation that he doesn't really care. How could this be? How could God offer more than he could, than he did? Even when he walked the dusty paths of Israel and Jerusalem long ago, think of the life he led. Physically and spiritually, he suffered daily, more than we could ever dream of, I suppose. Not that we try and emulate him in this regard. He was hated. He was mocked. He was teased. He was ridiculed. He was spat at. He was punched, hit, killed, reviled. We could never, not that we'd want to try and match this, but he gave his everything so that he'd accomplish his purpose of sorting the sin problem and therefore sorting the suffering problem. He knew what it was like to lose loved ones. Remember the story of Lazarus? He wept. He wasn't a stoic. He wept with Mary and Martha. He knew what it was like to be forsaken by all his friends. He knew what it was like to be forsaken by God the Father as well. The solution that God gave for the sin problem, I think, is the best solution of all the worldviews. Not that we should all stack them up and compare them because God's solution is so utterly different. But why do Christians suffer then? You'd think that if he's taking care of our sin problem through Jesus on the cross, through our belief that this is so, that Jesus has the ability and the power of God to take our sin, how come do we, how can we still suffer? This confuses a lot of Christians. We just suffer like non-Christians, don't we? Well. There's many reasons why we suffer. We suffer because we still sin. We suffer because we still live in a broken world which is full of sin. We suffer because the Joe Blogs down the road or the Joe Bloggs who bashed into us is a, is a sinful person and was maybe feeling a bit angry that morning and took the corner a bit too fast and caused a crash. Sin has just permeated every strand of our living and our life. And we sin, don't forget, because we're Christians. Russell was telling me this morning that he hoped that I wasn't gonna tell you that if you live good and obedient lives to Christ, that we wouldn't have suffering in our lives. Well, this is not true, for sure. Think of Job again. He was the most righteous man who lived at that time, the richest man in the world, but the most righteous. He had his priorities right. He was a generous man. And yet he suffered so much. Why would this be? What's the purpose? Well, some Christians think that, hey, Christians shouldn't suffer at all. Some ignore these truths and think perhaps that um, Christians should be kept from harm as they walk through this world. Randy Alcorn, on his article I read, How the Prosperity Gospel Perverts Our View of Evil and Suffering. He writes, Some churches today have no place for sin. Those who say that God has healed them get the microphone, while those who continue to suffer are shamed into silence or ushered out the back door. This response does not reflect Christ. Unfortunately, at times, Christians can reflect the pagan views of the world that's around us. No, the Christian has to have a radically different view to suffering because God is in control and he is sovereign. Since this is the case, cover your ears, someone. Some people might cover their ears when they hear, God can use suffering for our good. Suffering can cause us to lean harder on God. It can cause our faith to grow exponentially. When we look at churches that are in turmoil around the world, churches that are suffering because of political regimes in China, for example, We see they're the fastest growing churches in the world with the most serious Christians in them sometimes I look at my life and think it's way too comfortable it's way too comfortable and it's affecting the way I live as a Christian no suffering is not bad all the time think of disciplining your child any parent here imagine if you let your child just run amok at home didn't correct them because you might think it's too hurtful, too intolerant. No, when we discipline our children, we know there'll be pain and suffering involved, yet we know in the long run it's the best thing that we could do for them, it's the most loving thing we could do for them. Peter, um, or sorry, the writer of, he- of Hebrews touches on this in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11. He says that when, you know, when we are disobedient children, God has to use the rod on us. And he says, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Amen. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Now, whether God intentionally causes a hardship in your life for your discipline or perhaps for your maturity, or he allows a hardship into our lives. He has a purpose for it. There is a meaning to it. But not all suffering, remember, comes from God. Not every suffering should be greeted with, hmm, I wonder what God or why God did that now. No, we live in a broken world. But what we are called to do is that we are called to deal with it with our eyes fixed on Christ and to trust on him that he's with us he mightn't pull us through the suffering. We might die. We might be suffering from, a, from an illness which is terminal. But he will be with us in the valley of the shadow of death. Peter says, as Jason read earlier, First Peter, verse 19, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Listen to James chapter 1. Uh, verses 2 to 4, or James 1. Count it all joy, he says, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Man. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Another big difference between the way that a Christian makes sense of suffering and the way that other world views is that Christians know that suffering is only temporary. Okay, it might be just temporary for this life, which isn't a lot of consolation for some people, but this life is so short. Suffering is not going to go away in our lifetime. This should motivate the Christian to cope with their suffering in a different way. Revelation 21 verse 4, John writes, He will someday wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is the hope that we look forward to. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Paul is making the point that suffering causes us to keep ourselves focused on the much more eternal and heavy glory than the light affliction. It doesn't mean that we should ignore our suffering. He's not saying that we should think that our suffering is an illusion. We grapple and we deal with our suffering, but there is hope in the Christian worldview. Finally for us in the room an application. Another way that a Christian deals differently or Christians as a group deal differently with their suffering is we suffer in community. We're spiritual brothers and sisters who are reunited in Christ. We are part of his body and therefore even our suffering is to be shared with those for the purpose of healing and growth in Christ. Paul in 2 Corinthians verses 3 to 7 throws a lot of light on this comforting and healing ministry of us to each other. He writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings. So through Christ, we share abundantly in comfort too. Isn't that marvelous? If we're afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, will also share in our comfort. We are called to be people who weep together as well as rejoicing together. What we should do as a church is we should surround ourselves with a core of brothers or sisters and get to know them well, get to share our lives with them so that we can heal and comfort one another. This is radically different to a world view where I'm not saying there's no counseling available, but the counseling that Christians do is amongst ourselves in this room because we have the same Father. We can call on the same resources. We can call on the same promises to this beautiful, holy, undefiled treasure that's waiting in heaven for us, as Peter says. That is the hope that is the fuel by which we surf the waves of suffering in this life. I think Chris is going to finish up with a hymn by It Is Well With My Soul. This is written by or this was written by Horatio Spafford. And I didn't know the story till I came on it a couple of nights ago. Uh, Extraordinary story of a man who was American Christian and he went through an enormous amount of suffering. In 1871 his his son died, only four years old. A couple of years after He sent his wife and four daughters over to Europe. They were actually going to accompany D.L. Moody on a missionary campaign. And there was a tragic accident accident in mid-Atlantic where two ships collided. And his four daughters were drowned. His wife barely made it. She floated or she managed to uh, stay alive by staying on top of some floatsome. And when she sent word from Wales to her husband of what had happened, he boarded a ship straight away and went over to console her to join her. And at one point when he was over waters, that was three miles deep. The captain of the ship came into him and said, and you can imagine the old English, he said, a careful reckoning has been made and I believe we are now passing the place where the Villa du Havre, which was the name of the boat, was wrecked. What did he do? He returned to his cabin and he penned this hymn. It is well with my soul. How could he do that? This was a man who was not ignoring his pain. He he wasn't a man who was a stoic who was trying to avoid grieving by going to his cabin to writing a hymn. But he was a man man who knew that his girls were safely in the bosom of Jesus and that he would meet them there again someday himself. Let's praise God. Father, we thank you for... um, We thank you, Lord, for your gospel. We thank you, Lord, for the provision that you have made through your son, Jesus, to heal this broken world. We thank you, Lord, that you've uh, given us brothers and sisters in this room who can counsel with us and encourage us and keep us focused in times of trouble and turmoil on the promise that will give us hope. We thank you so much in Jesus' name. Amen.